0: I'd become aware of the ominous brooding menace of God from an early age. He was responsible for all the misery on the planet, as far as I could see. God was continually smiting people when they annoyed him. And my father had clearly taken a leaf out of God's book. God smote the Assyrians and most of the interesting people in the world seemed to be Assyrians. He also worked in mysterious ways to prevent enjoyment wherever he could ascertain its presence. My father was a staunch advocate of God and the normality he decreed in his mercy. My father did his level best curtail deviations from normality wherever they manifested. My father, recognising me as a nascent Assyrian, started taking me to church in order to cure me of the sin of being different. It was there that I heard all kinds of gruesome facts about God. Judah's firstborn was wicked in his sight, and God slew him, and the sons of Judah, Onan and Shelah, who were born of the daughter of Shua of the Canaanites. And Ere was evil in his sight, and so he slew him too. Then he smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, and to the firstborn of the captive that was in the dundron, and all the firstborn of cattle. And there went out a fire from God that devoured them. Nadab and Abihu died by fire, and when the people complained, it displeased God, and his anger was kindled, and the fire burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of God was kindled, and he smote the people with a very great plague. And behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And God discomfited them and slew them, with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to beth Horon, where God smote them to Azachar and unto Machedar. And God cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azachar, and they died, and more died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with their sword. And God smote Benjamin, and destroyed of the Benjamites that day twenty and five thousand and an hundred men. Then he smote the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of God. Then the anger of God was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him for his error, and there he died. And God struck the child that Uriah's wife bore unto David, and it was very sick. And Elisha prayed unto God, and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And God smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And God smote the king, so that he was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house. And God sent lions among them, which slew some of them. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. After that hideous history of God's despicable conduct, I decided I'd better join Sennacherib in Nineveh where God couldn't get at me. God was just too damn keen on smiting. He'd be after me next for certain, for yea, I'd be naughty in his sight and he'd smite me in his mercy. Enough with mercy already. I got it regularly from the lash of my father's Sam Brown leather belt on my posterior, without need of God's mercy into the bargain. Spare the rod and spoil the child, was my father's motto. Somehow it never became plain to me till much later in life that my father was merely being a Victorian, subsequent to Victoria's departure from the throne and somewhat later than her cultural bequest demanded. He was not the only such father, by any means. A Victorian father of a nascent hippie is going to be beset with causes for chastisement. How was I to know that 1967 wasn't due to arrive for another decade? So, as 1967 had vexingly failed to arrive, and there was no happening to attend, I roamed the fabulous spread of wilderness that began at the back of our garden. A lane about 10 to 12 feet wide ran down the odd numbered side of Woodsfield Lane. You could follow it up right into the woods. It was like a secret door to another dimension. The lane was an overgrown paradise where I could play before meals and my mother could call me quite easily. There were blackberries growing there and all manner of other small miracles. On the other side of the lane lay the grounds of a deserted manor house. The house was supposed to be haunted and I always toyed with the idea of creeping over there to explore it in the daytime of course but severe warnings had been issued against that. The police would know about it and the culprit meaning me would be imprisoned for life and kept on a strict diet of bread and water. The police were everywhere as far as my father was concerned They had eyes in the back of their heads, and worst of all, radar. Radar was another of those sinister words my father used. The very sound of it made me feel queasy. They had radar, probably hidden in their pointed helmets, that would detect my slightest move. They'd see me from miles away. And then they'd be down on me at the speed of locomotives with handcuffs and chains. They'd have truncheons, grunions, trunnions and bunions, and who knows what other vindictive devices of moral order. I was well accustomed to my route of escape. I more or less Knew every tree, or at least every nut bearing tree. There were hazelnuts and sweet chestnuts in season. There were acorns and horse chestnuts and all manner of delights. There were still a few red squirrels in those days, and I loved to catch a glimpse of them scurrying along the branches, gathering provender for the winter. So, up the brambled lane, along the path to the edge of the thicker woods and across the stream into the really wild area where people who were not backwoodsmen of my calibre could become lost for ever. Then I had some choices. I could range on up to the hills at the north end of the woods if I had time or I could turn south and find the largest path that ran through the middle of the woods. On this one particular day, I decided to turn south and the result of that choice changed my life forever. As I sauntered down the path, I wondered how far I would go on whether i'd come home by way of the road or whether i'd retrace my steps it was always a choice i'd have to make at some point i was thus preoccupied when i caught sight of something flickering in the distant trees i wondered if it was some kind of animal it was too big for a badger it was too small for a deer, and I knew there were no deer in the woods. It seemed colourful too, so I wondered if it could be a bird. A woodpecker? A kingfisher? It might be a kingfisher because there was a small pond in that direction. I decided to explore. I quietened my tread and stole along the bank of the river Blackwater. It was only a stream, but I'd been told it was once a river. I thought that if I walked as quietly as I was able, right next to the river, that the sound of it trickling would mask my footfall. I was right. Whatever it was that was flickering, kept flickering. Then, suddenly, the kaleidoscope image became a mosaic, and the mosaic became a sprite, a woodland nymph dressed in some kind of shimmering collection of colours, maroon, flame-red, orange, yellow and blue. I sat and watched the fairy on the edge of the stream as she leapt from one foot to another in some exotic and rarefied series of movements almost resembled a dance. She was like a dragonfly, sometimes holding her arms high in the air like wings and sometimes letting them trail. She pirouetted gracefully and twirled with surprising vigour, weaving her way amongst the entanglement of lithe young elm trees. I wondered whether she was the White Lady who used to come to visit me at night, and whether she'd decided to stay in the woods. But her face was different and she was much younger. Then she saw me. She froze. Why are you looking at me? she asked, but without any accusatory tone. She seemed innocently curious, I didn't answer immediately because I was still stunned by the fact that she wasn't from the twilight world. She was a real girl in the real normal world. She stood surprisingly still peering at me from behind a lattice of slender branches. Because, because you're beautiful, I replied not knowing what else to say. Am I? She replied. Yes. How do you know? I don't know. It was in my mind and that's why. And Those words were just there when you asked me why I was looking at you. And it's completely true. Yes. Of course. Yes, she said, as if in a deep reverie. So what is your name? Victor. Where do you come from, Victor? Suddenly, I didn't know what to say. Where did I come from? I didn't know. I came from nowhere. I i was just born... And then, and, but, but now I'm here. No, she laughed. I mean, where do you live? I live on the other side of the woods from here in Woodsfield Lane. Do You want to know my name? She asked with a broad smile. Yes, please. That would be very nice indeed. My name? is Alice, Alice Rosalind Trevelyan, and that spells art. Tomorrow evening for uh, part three of chapter two, we may be a few minutes later than nine o'clock starting. So it's more likely to be maybe ten past nine as we are teaching on the other channel until nine o'clock. So we'll be there as soon after nine as we can.